Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Zara Koka is a safari guide, ecotourism guide in Kenya. Zarek and I have been engaging through Instagram and WhatsApp, and you know he understands hunting, he understands a hunting model, but obviously lives in Kenya, uh, in which hunting is banned. and. He just wanted to have a conversation with me to almost give you a, a deeper insight into what's happening in Kenya and to say, hey, yeah, we have a bad rap and yes, we've lost a lot of wildlife, but you know, there's some areas that are doing some really good stuff without hunting, specifically ecotourism. So this podcast really touches only on hunting you know, near the end, but really gives you an informed insight from someone who works and lives and breathes. Um, wildlife in Kenya, an understanding of what's happening on the ground, how it's morphing, and how it's protecting wildlife. Really appreciate Zara coming on. It took us about, well, it took me about 18 months to convince him to come to a podcast with me. And I think you'll agree it's a really good one. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple, is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. You just got off COVID? Man, you're the first person I've heard that's had COVID in like... Honestly, a year maybe. It was bad. 
Now I say that to myself, I'm probably going to get freaking COVID in the next two months or month or two weeks. Well, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, I was down like with really bad fever and chills and just, you know, my body aching and felt, felt like I'd been hit by a train for about two days. Um, and now that's yeah. kind of over, but I've got, you can probably hear a bit of a stuffy nose and hollow, hollow yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a bit annoying. 100%. Anyway. Not malaria, Zarek. No, no, I w <laughs> went and got a malaria test done because that was the first thing that came to my head. Uh, but uh, that was negative. It was COVID. How many times have you had malaria, Zarek? Never. Touch wood. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, not to my knowledge. How many days in the bush do you spend, typically, do you think? Um, oof, well over... Well over 150. 150? Yeah, more than, more, yeah. yeah, about 50% of the year. And in malaria areas? Oh, well, I live... Not really? I, I live on the coast, which is definitely a malaria area. Um, but otherwise, a lot of the safari destinations here, are, they're higher altitude or, or very dry, so the malaria is not a big thing. And when you say coast and here, where, where are we talking, Zarek? Oh, sorry. I'm in Kenya, um, and <laughs> so I live, I live on the south coast of Kenya at a place called Diani, which is, and even though, even though I may be biased here, I, I think I'm correct in saying probably one of the best beaches in the world. Um, certainly really? the best beach in Africa. Oh, yeah. If Better you want, than Mozambican beaches? If you want, well, look, I've never been to Mozambique, so I can't say. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've been to I've been to beaches in other parts of Africa. I've been to beaches in 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 Asia as well, into places which are are famous for their beaches, and they just don't compare. Um, so you're you're telling the world that did, what did you call your town? Dindi, Diani, Diani, Diani. Yeah. Yeah. That everyone should come to Diani for a beach vacation? Well, no, because then it won't be the best beach in the world anymore, will it? It's <laughs> part, of, part of what makes it so great is that there's, I mean, it's definitely a popular tourist destination, but it's, it's not like what you think of with the big resorts in South America where you've got like, you know, you can barely like swing your arms in one direction or another. You can walk down the beach and you don't bump into anybody and it's, you know, big, wide open white sandy beaches it's a very beautiful place but it wouldn't be is there beautiful. still good fishing off the beach there is eric would you say um, could you catch fish off the beach unfortunately i mean it depends on like for deep sea fishing it's it's decent um yeah. i'm not a i'm not a fisherman but um unfortunately our fishery has been completely hammered by uh commercial fishing so the the local fishers are um basically out of a job, out of food. There's like our, pro our prawn fishery is completely hammered. All of our smaller fishes are completely hammered. Uh, everything's been taken over by large commercial fishes, commercial trawlers. Dang. Um, so yeah. Um, the, the generally Kenya coastline has been very badly depleted because of a lack of hey. enforcement. Um, 
and a lack of a lack of good legislation. Hmm. What about um? So before I continue, we've we've got going. Zara Cocker, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Finally, yeah, thanks, Jesus creepers, and and twenty four months maybe to twist your rubber arm. You got the name right as well. Well, I've had a bit of practice over the last twenty four months. You know, <laughs> I've said your name so many times that it's like I got to get it right now. Yeah, sorry, I've been I've been a pestering force in the background. Constantly emailing you and, and messaging I, you. You're the kind of person we want, man. You're the kind of person we want. That's the kind of person who engages us. You live in Kenya. You don't hunt, but you appreciate what we do for, for in terms of speaking about wildlife and conservation. You get embroiled in social media comment oh. battles. Oh, you're the man. man. Um, yeah, it's a problem. I don't know how you do what you do, Robbie, in terms of getting... <laughs> Embroiled with the social media comments and battles because I tried it yesterday, as you saw, and I just lost steam. <laughs> I just had to give up and and walk away. Yeah, uh, you know, you've got to you've got to take social media battles. You can't take it personally. Number one, as soon as you take it personally, then and I'm developing a thicker skin. I still take things personally. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's there's things about it that will get under my skin. So you've got to you've got to figure out how to toughen your skin from a, a personal perspective. Two, you almost got to think like beyond a person, and you got to use yeah. the opportunity to like educate and advocate. And because the way that I always approach it is that you're not trying to convince the person. Depends, but most often not. You're not trying to convince the person to change their mind that you're you're going up against in terms of a comment or your, the the post that you're putting. But rather, it's the thousand people that read what you wrote, or ten thousand people that read what yeah. you wrote. Yeah. What uh, What frustrates me is the is the ten people that don't read what you wrote, and then will comment the exact same thing, like three comments down. And you're like, you can see that there's fifteen comments here, and you're responding to them, but you haven't read them. Anyway, oh yes. no, they don't. They don't, and and more often than not, they'll if you've ri- if you've written five sentences, they've read the first sentence and then started oh, yeah. responding. Oh yeah. Anyway, kudos so, to you. Well done. <laughs> no, thank you, man. Thank you, Zarek. Uh, give us a little bit of introduction to who you are, what you do. Um, right. So I am Zarek. I am a safari guide here in Kenya. I run mostly photographic safaris. Um, but in the last few years, I've also begun to kind of specialize in, um, niche safaris for mammal watchers who are basically like the twitching, twitcher equivalent of birders. Um, like they want to check the boxes kind of guys, check the boxes, but, and, but not quite often they actually really do appreciate things beyond just ticking off a box um but they're dedicated to seeing you know they'll have target species and so they'll come to kenya or i've guided trips now in in chad and rwanda and um ivory coast as well looking for a very particular target species um so what would someone target give us some examples so if they're going to let's 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 start with ivory coast and we do chad and kenya so somebody goes to ivory coast what are they looking for uh pygmy hippo is uh higgy hippo oh. yeah 
and uh, and Western chimpanzee, and then there's some, you know, lots of smaller things like a water chevrotain, um, golden cat. A water what? Chevrotain. It's a. It's. It looks like a. It looks like a like a miniature deer, or or antelope, um, but it's in its own family called Tregulidae. And it has these weird, large canine. So it, it's an ungulate. It's a, it's a, a you know, even is it like ungulate. a Chinese water um, deer. Um, yeah, maybe. Actually, don't even know the scientific. What's the scientific name of a Chinese water deer? Oh, here we go. A water chevrotain. Look at this thing. A fanged deer. Yeah, it's the got only these two species big, in the genus Hymochus, I think. I'm saying that right? No. Man, look at that. Cool thing, huh? Oh, man. They're like the size of a they're like the size of a diker and you know, a, a small small average diker. And they've got these sort of weird almost canines which the males use for uh in their fighting, I think, when they're fighting for Oh, females. I see them sticking out of the lip there. It's amazing. Yeah. Huh. They only occur in the Ivory Coast. They don't occur anywhere no, else. No, no. So they occur. They occur all over Central and Western Africa and in forests. Um, but because you're already there, um, Thai, Thai forests and Ivory Coast is one of the best places to see to see um, pygmy hippo. Probably the yeah, probably the only re- reasonable place to go and see pygmy hippo. And there's lots of lots and lots of other good mammals there as well. Um, so, I mean, squirrels, there's like six different types of squirrels there. Um, and people get excited, you know, about all sorts of these things. So yeah, that's the kind of trip that I lead. And then, uh, Chad, you've got, Chad's, Chad's good for, for mammals in general. There's, uh, there's fennec fox in the north and pale fox and rupel's fox. Uh, there's jerboas. Uh, which are these little, look like little kangaroos with long tails and just the, the cutest mm-hmm. little face. Um, and uh, then in, in central Chad, you've, there's a big reintroduction pro, uh, program by the Sahara Conservation Fund, which is right, for... Right, of Arabian um, oryx yeah, and not Arabian, scimitar horned. Scimitar horned oryx and an adex. And, oh, addicts, that's right, that's right, and, that's right. And Dama Gazelle. Yep. So those are definitely high on the list for people, um, but it also there... Zarek, are those animals, you're, you're finding, especially the antelope, the scimitar, the addicts, the Dama Gazelle, are they in the wild now in Chad? Are they still behind a fence? What's the situation the, there? The oryx and the addicts both are, they are now released. Um, and so they have released the Oryx. I think they've released something like 300 or 250 of them or so. And now the total population with their wild births is around, it's just over 500 now. Yeah. So there are Oryx which have been born in the wild. The same goes for, um, for addicts, although there's fewer addicts, but there have, there are wild births, um, but they're going to plan. They plan to 
for the Oryx, I think that the plan is to have 500 total introductions and then let the wild population then go from there. Um, and then the Oryx, I think, or the Adex, sorry, I think is probably going to be around 500 total introductions as well, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know what they've reached now. Then the Dama mm -hmm. Gazelle, they have, there are a few wild ones which were like original population or, or which have wandered over from Niger. Um, but they've got <clears throat> a few which are still in a stockade, not yet ready to be fully released. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The species in Kenya, what are people chasing in Kenya? Oh, um, it's, Kenya's a really good place for a uh, giant forest hog, um, for the Tana River manga bee and Tana River red colbus, both of which are critically endangered endemics. Um, there's the golden rumped elephant shrew. There's the hirola, which is also a critically endangered endemic antelope here um in fact i think other than the saola if that still exists i think the hirola is supposed to be the most critical it's it's the most endangered antelope in the world and it's even though some other antelopes have smaller populations in the wild they still have very good populations in captivity whereas the hirola there are no populations in captivity and there's only there's less than 400 or 500 of them left in the wild. So it's the, I think it's the most endangered antelope in the world. You were talking about the Saola, that's a Vietnamese, the antelope, right? Exactly, yeah. But the Hirola and the, and the Saola is thought to be extinct, but um, there are still expeditions going out looking for it, which with, with some hope. Oh man, the Hirola is a freaking crazy looking animal. Yeah, it's like a it's mixture, like a mixture between a harder beast and an impala. Yeah, with white spectacles. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, they're very cool. That is a weird little mixture, man. That's like a platypus type animal. <laughs> so they are they're in the same they're in the same tribe as as this hartebeest. They're sloping back uh -huh. antelopes, just like hartebeest and sesame topi, all of the rest of them. Um, but is then, Eric the are you go ahead? Go no, ahead. No, carry on. What else are they? Are people? Are they... Um. So the, this look, there's a there's a lot here. the The reason I got started into these into these uh, mammal watching trips was there was a guy, a young American guy in 2021. This is you know I thought COVID was had sort of killed off tourism uh, tourism for me for a while, but he contacted me and wanted to come for the mammal watching trip and he gave me a list of target species some of which i had no idea how to find um but we had we you ever had someone reach out to you before and said this is exact this is the, the things no, i want to see no he was the first um and so we i i loved it i put together you know it it was months and months of research and writing to people and, and, you know, talking to, to researchers and talking to scientists and, and people at the museum and all sorts of things on the ground. Where can I find this? And when was the last time this was seen and that kind of stuff. And then put together an itinerary and just went for it. And in 20 days, we saw 126 mammal species. What? Yeah. Um, cause we went for 
every mouse, every rodent, every bat. Um, How the hell do you find mice and and rats on a safari tour, Eric? Um, with thermoscopes and <laughs> night drives. Does it count? Yeah. So you, it, it counts if you see it with your oh, with your naked you eye. Use the thermal. You see the thermal, and then you put the spotlight on them. Exactly. Or you, or oh, you, okay, ca- okay. yeah, you, 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 you put the ther- you get the, you find it in the thermal, so you know that it's there. Then you, then you look for it with your naked eye or with a torch or whatever, and you try and take a photograph of it. Obviously, you can't get a photograph of everything, but uh, with reasonable accuracy, with reasonable certainty, certainty, we were able to identify 126 species, which is yeah, wowza. Um, this guy that contacted you is he. Does he have like a list? Is he doing going through the list and how how many animals are on that list? Oh, he's yeah, he's got a list. He's been all over the world, um, and uh, I don't know where he ranks because there's a, there's you know people keep lists just like with birders, um, but he's he's up there with you know some of the highest number of mammals seen of of anybody I think. Um, he's he because he goes everywhere. He really he targets species that he has not yet seen, and then whatever else comes along, comes along, and his yeah his his list racks up. That is fascinating because uh, and really the obviously this is you know large and ties into hunting, and we've engaged on hunting and whatnot. It's almost it's very very akin to someone who hunts around the world and checks boxes that people you know really don't appreciate or like the idea of someone going around the world and hunting the species itself. Yeah. Here the guys taking photographs of them. Yeah. And there's obviously I would say gosh I would probably say there's probably tenfold or maybe even 50fold number of animals that this individual could engage with that a hunter would not be interested in engaging well, with yeah. unless they started doing like blow darts for rats and mice and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> so the, I, I guess I mean, maybe the, the, the question to you, Zarek, is this. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Carry on. What, what's the difference here, Zarek? Is it just because hunters kill animals that there's, there's such a bad rap? Or are they very... I, I, my brain is struggling here because I'm thinking like, that sounds like an amazing model. Okay, let's just go, it's maybe cut to the crux of the matter. Sounds like an amazing model for wildlife conservation. You've got this individual who's super interested in seeing all the animals and is willing to invest money and pay you to do it, right? That's probably not a very, it, it's not an inexpensive safari. That's a very expensive, high-end, dare I say high-end, um, high-end from a research places things to see, things to do perspective. It, it, it could be a model for wildlife conservation. And, and that's almost the thing that hunters are touted as, is that you know, you're going around the world to see these places, go to these really, really crazy places, do crazy things, put yourself in conditions that nobody else would put in, themselves into to take that one animal. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some similarities, you know, with it. The trip wasn't cheap, um, but we were we were camping 
um, and eating very simple food. Um, a lot of the time we weren't, we weren't staying in high-end lodges. We only stayed in one high-end lodge because it was the best place to see certain, you know, certain species that were on the, the target list. But otherwise we were, we were staying, we're keeping it low key. Uh, but it ended up becoming quite expensive just because of the number of places we visited, the amount of yeah. kilome- kilometers that we covered, um, and the the park fees and everything else. Um, but in terms of the contributions to conservation, um, I think it was relatively low, or or at least not much different from your average ecotourist, hey. photographic tourist. Um, the difference is that we did visit quite a few places which normal ecotourists or normal photographic tourists would not visit, just like a hunter would. You know, yeah. we're going to we're going to places which are well off the beaten track, where you know nobody in their right mind would go, um, just because there's two or three high you know high value targets on in that area, and so we will be paying a local guide. And we will be paying some sort of access fees or something like that to get in there. Although those access fees are usually pretty pretty minimal, um, but that is that's the extent of the conservation contribution to it. Um, there, <clears throat> we there was one place again the 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 place where the the high end lodge was that I was mentioning, which is a it's a community run. Conservancy, um, and the lodge pays quite a high percentage of uh, the fees that you pay to stay there. But quite a high percentage of that goes towards uh, land lease fees and uh, sort of a general lease agreement with the com- with the mm. community for the year, and that covers something like sixty thousand acres. So it's quite a large area, and it encompasses a, a variety of habitats. And a high diversity of both, you know, mammals, birds, invertebrates, everything else as well. So that place, I really, there is good impact there. Um, some of the other places, if you were just going to a national park, then, you know, the Kenya Wildlife Service is getting your money. And where that money goes, again, is questionable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Zarek, um, in your opinion, yeah. when you go to the Ivory Coast, Chad, Kenya, where are you seeing most of your wildlife that you are chasing? So Ivory Coast, we only went into Thai National Park, which is in the, in the far western side of the country, just near the Liberian border. Um, everywhere else outside of Thai National Park is heavily cultivated with rubber, cocoa, um, and a few other crops, but it's it's mostly large rubber plantations, cocoa plantations, and uh, sorry, and uh, palm oil. So yeah. when you when you fly over Ivory Coast, it all looks very green, um, but it's in these neat little rows. And then only when you get to the national park that you can you see that there's actually like a, a proper canopy there, and you can look at it even on Google Maps. You can see the whole country is this sort of lighter green color. And then where Thai National Park is, is like dark green. And it's, uh, you know, so you can just, even a satellite image, you can see where the vegetation is different. So outside the national parks, I I just don't, at least there, 
it didn't feel like there was much in the way of biodiversity outside the national park. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Kenya, um, and this is now where we get into the subject of what's happened since hunting was banned. Yeah, well, tell me about that because you've obviously got you. Um, you know, we chatted to a mate of yours earlier, and we we talked about there is obviously the rhetoric that's constantly used. Seventy-seven hunting ban came in. Kenya lost 80 percent of its wildlife. Great wildlife in the bastions of the national parks. Not much, if any, outside of it. But there has been a resurgence of of conservancies marrying cattle, humans, and wildlife in Kenya. Yeah. So if you, like around some of the more famous places like uh, Masai Mara, for instance, um, there are now conservancies which go almost all the way around the National Reserve. Um, and those conservancies cover about the same land area as the reserve itself. So it's, it's double the land of what it would have been if it was just the National Reserve by itself. And the way that worked was that those areas all used to be um, communal land. It was all communal land ownership with a chairman or with a committee. And any, any land use that was going on there, whether it was tourism or farming or whatever else, the, the revenue collected from it would then go through that chairman and gets then, you know, officially would get trickled down to the rest of the people, but in reality never did. And right. so they started to subdivide that. So each individual family would then get their own um, parcel of land with their individual title deeds. Um, and that kind of everybody panicked in the tourism industry that this was going to be sort of the death the, the death of the Mara because everybody's going to put up their fences now that they've got an individual title deed. Uh, but actually, the Maasai came together in a lot of those areas and said, we actually don't want to put up fences. We want to keep this area open for our livestock, and we want to keep making money from tourism. So let's form these conservancies. And now you have, I can't remember how many there are. You know, I, you spoke to Calvin. Calvin has those kind of numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But... They cover the same, the same land area as the reserve itself, and it's, it's coming to a point where they're going to start exceeding that soon. Um, and it's, each, each conservancy has a slightly different management model and different, different way that it's, they, they run, collect revenue, et cetera. But the, the basic model is that there's a, you have wildlife on your land, so you have tourism partners, uh, safari camps and lodges who will come and build there, or maybe who already had a property there. They pay a... Um, a lease fee to the community. They probably will also pay a midnight fee to, right. to that as well. Um, and so over the course of the year, it, you get each landowner gets a tangible and predictable income for his or her piece of land in that conservancy. And so they are then able to plan their finances. They're able to pay for their school fees, you know, buy buy a new cow or, or start building a house or whatever, because they know how much money is coming in every month. Um, it's, not, it's not purely based on tourism numbers. So even in a, in a low season, you would still have the same amount of money coming in as you would in a high tourist season. Anyway, the point of that is that now you have these areas where um, they are lower density tourism. You have fewer camps. They actually put a, they put a limit on the number of of bents in those conservancies um, and a higher cost for each tourist. 
so that it's lower density, higher impact, uh, right. po positive impact. Um, anyway, the, the end result is that you have a, each one works slightly differently, but like I'll give you the case of the Naboisho Conservancy, which I visit quite often, um, where the landowners for that conservancy are allowed to graze their livestock within the conservancy, um, but it's a controlled grazing plan. So the, 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 the conservancy management will go, they will, they will allow the livestock in and they say, okay, today you and the, these five herds, you are to graze in this area for the next two weeks. And then, and you know, then there's a core area in the middle of the conservancy where there's no grazing, or at least not in the high season. Um, and so throughout the year, the cows are sort of moving around, mimicking a migrating herd. Um, it's, it's basically that regenerative agricultural sort of planned grazing model, but using local community herds. And like, for instance, right now, if you go into Masai Mara National Reserve, there's been lots of rain um, and the grass is probably about six feet tall. Um, mm. it's, it's impossible to find game there. <clears throat> you can drive around for hours and you'll see, you know, a herd of elephants here and maybe a, a, a few buffaloes sitting, you know, wandering through the grass over here. But otherwise there's no, there's no medium or small grazers there. And so there's very few predators as well. Um, but if you go into the conservancies, because they have their grazing plan, um, and they're constantly cycling that nutrients and cycling the grass and keeping the grass reasonably short. It's, it's, you know, shouldn't be kept down to like a, a lawn, but shorter. So there you have Thompson gazelles, Brands gazelles, impalas, topi, wildebeest, hartebeest, uh, water buck, bush buck. And all the predators. All, all of that. Plus, yeah, then you've got serval, you've got car caracals, you've got uh, cheetahs, lions, leopards hyenas, striped hyenas, you know, you name it. And Zarek, are the, are the locals okay? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's a little bit of, there should be, you would assume there would be human-wildlife conflict, you know, cows, cattle being taken by these predators. Are the, what is the community's feelings in that regard, specifically in the conservancy that you go to? Okay, so um, the conservancies generally have strict rules about how the, how the livestock are grazed. Number one, they can only graze during the daytime. Um, at nighttime, they have to go out of the conservancy and be, be closed into uh, a boma, a corral. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, during the day, while they're in the conservancy, they have to be a company. It, it's, it's only cows. It's not goats and sheep. Because goats and sheep, number one, are, have to be managed much more intensively so that they don't <laughs> cause detrimental, you know, totally degrade the whole area. But number two, also, they're, they're much easier to go missing behind a bush and get taken by a cheetah. Um, whereas, so it, it can only be cows, and the cows can only be accompanied by um, adult herders. They, they, cannot okay. be, they cannot be accompanied by, by children, even teenagers. Because what they found is that lions, leopards, cheetahs, hyenas, everything else are much, much less likely 
to attack livestock if there's an adult herder standing around. Um, a herder who is, they also find that the adult herders just tend to be a little bit more watchful and a little bit more alert mm. than the than mm. the children because the children are easily distracted and maybe fall asleep no, on a tree come or on something. Now. Exactly. <laughs> um, I've been dealing with an 11-year-old who doesn't think for the last five <laughs> days. Yeah. But, you know, traditionally, traditionally, young boys would go out with their livestock and the younger boys would accompany their older brothers. Um, and their older brothers would be the ones who would kind of be teaching the young boys the ways of, of you know, husbandry and, and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas now it's like kids are, kids are going to school. Um, and so sometimes it's only the very youngest who might go out with the, go out with the livestock. And that's obviously a recipe for disaster. <clears throat> so within the conservancy, it's cows only, it's adults only. Uh, they have to be out of the conservancy before dark. Um, and the, there is also a, a MAS-MR predator conservation program, which is monitoring predators in the area all the time, but primarily lions and cheetahs. And so if there's a female who happens to have cubs and she's hiding in, you know, a, a draw or a valley with thick vegetation and you know she's got her cubs in there, then you warn the, you warn the okay. livestock uh, herders, avoid this area. Um, and then they have, some of the lions are even collared as well. So if there's lions which are constantly going out of the conservancy into the community areas outside, then they can kind of monitor that and then they can kind of warn people as well and potentially take action, either darting her and moving her somewhere else or figuring something else out. Anyway, so there's lots of mitigation methods. Um, and with the conservancy landowners themselves, retaliation for livestock killing hey. is very low. Um, so we do still see poisoning of livestock, poisoning of uh, livestock carcasses outside the reserve in areas where the people do not have, act, they, they're not necessarily members of the conservancy. Maybe they're in, in the neighboring areas and there is no tourism in there and there's no other, there's nothing else which is bringing them income from, from wildlife. And so for them, as, a, as it is everywhere else across, you know, Kenya and the rest of a lot of other parts of Africa, right. if you don't get benefits from that wildlife and that wildlife is only, the, the only thing that you see with that wildlife is death and destruction, then <laughs> you're going to do your best to get rid of it. Um, and in those situations, yeah, then you see what happens is that uh, there's a there's a a nasty pesticide or or um, it's a it's a herbicide which is called carbofuran, um, which is like these little purple pellets, which you can buy over the counter at any agricultural veterinary store. Um, and you can, you know, if a lion comes and kills your cow, then you scare the lions off the carcass. You lace the cow carcass with this uh, carbofuran, and then the, the cows come and, oh, sorry, the lions come back and feed on it. It kills the lions very quickly. It kills the jackals, the hyenas, the vultures, Jeez. the tawny eagles, the bachelors, the, the flies, the carrion beetles, the dung beetles, everything that comes in contact with that thing falls, drops dead pretty much immediately. 
Um, and so because of that, then we've seen this massive drop in our vulture mm. population across East Africa as well. Some of our vultures have dropped uh, by about 98% the populations. Um, so that's a big issue. If you look at India, I'm sure you're aware of their vulture population having dropped by 99.9% in 20 years. Um, their public health bill has increased by $20 billion. There's no vultures just to clean because up they all now the carcasses. Have to deal yeah. with... Exactly. So you've got, you've got, suddenly you've got this massive explosion of, yep. of a feral dog population and rats, which then go around spreading rabies and tuberculosis and anthrax and, you know, everything else under the sun. And so you've got all these zoonotic diseases, which are now being transmitted to humans. And then the, you know, Indian public health department has to deal with that <laughs> because they lost all their vultures. And, um, Africa is heading the same direction. It's not just Kenya, by the way. This yeah, is all, yeah, over, yeah, yeah. all over Africa. But, but the, the causes in Kenya is this, sec, this poisoning. Nobody intends to poison vultures. They intend to poison lions or, or leopards. Um, and then the, the, the vulture is a sort of unintentional, unintended consequence, which nobody really thinks about. Zarek, is there a, is there a demand for more of these conservancies to come online in Kenya, it seems like, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is these conservancies around, let's just the example that you gave us around the Masai Mara, seem to be sh moving away from the whole like 60, 70 Land Rovers lining the banks or, you know, or focusing on a cheetah kill of a harder beer. So they becoming more. Not, I wouldn't say exclusive, exclusive isn't the right term, but um, more cognizant of the footprint on the environment, but obviously you'd tangibly need to think through the cost per bed night because there's not as much volume coming in. But So there is a demand for that and people are seeing it and there's a value to the wildlife and things are growing? Yeah, definitely. Um... Those conservancies now are, um, they're at capacity in terms of their, you know, I told you that, that each of them, when they're formed, they, they, they come up with a management plan. They, they decide on the, the maximum number of beds that they're going to allow in that conservancy based on number of vehicles that they want at each sighting and the money that they think they can make from each of those bed nights for the, for the landowners. And so they've come to the, they've created that maximum number of bed nights or bet, sorry, number of beds per acre. Um, and now they've reached those, they've reached that, that level. And so the scramble is now continue forming new conservancies outside, beyond, um, so that you can continue to have more camps which can contribute to that sort of thing. The other thing which I think that um, Calvin may have alluded to a little bit in his chat with you earlier, whenever that was, um, was that you know, there's there's all these camps and lodges inside Masai Mara National Reserve, um, or just on the border of it, which don't actually contribute anything to conservation inside or outside. Um, they just kind of exist. They may pay a single landowner uh, a lease fee or a rental fee, um, or maybe they just buy the land outright. But their tourists come in and go out and they don't actually contribute any sort of conservation fee towards anything. 
And so the, there's a new management plan for the whole of the Masai Mara, including the, the greater areas outside. Um, and that is going to try to get all those other establishments to start contributing and pulling their weight towards you know, um, securing land beyond the conservancy. So even if there's areas which are marginal, which are not necessarily high tourism potential, um, that there'll still be some money which can go towards securing them, making sure that, the, that they don't get completely fenced off, making sure that they don't get completely degraded or, or you know, farmed with maize. Um, because honestly... How are those people stepping up, Zarek? Are they, are they contributing more? Um, are they saying a, a, a more percent of their profit needs to go to the local communities? At the moment, nothing has happened. Uh, they are not stepping up. And they probably will fight it. Um, but they're, they're, the new management plan, which has literally just been sort of published, um, aims to try to find ways to get them to contribute and to get outside, um, outside contributions as well, whether it's from industry uh, in Nairobi or whatever, to help as a payment for ecosystem services, basically. Uh, to contribute to to securing that land, because the biggest issue that the that the Mara and we keep talking about the Mara, that you know, there's other parts of Kenya which obviously have different challenges, uh, but with the Mara, the biggest issue that one of the biggest issues that they face is this never-ending advancement of fencing um, because of that subdivision that I was talking about outside the conservancies. That subdivision has continued, and in those areas, people do put up fences. And each person has their individual parcel of 100, 100, 150 acres or whatever it is, and they put up a fence around it. Um, and, you know, it, number one, it breaks down the Maasai sense of community. Because they were nomadic pastoralists in the past, uh, they did everything together as a community. They made decisions together as a community. They didn't have a chief. They would make decisions by committee. Um, and and yeah. everybody worked together and everybody helped each other for the greater good. And you would plan where your grazing was going to be and you were going to leave this patch of grass here because well, that will be our dry season uh, grazing bike in, in emergency times. You make all those decisions together as, as a group. And now suddenly you've got all these fences coming up and people no longer have that sense of community. They no longer have that sense of that willingness to help each other and to make those decisions together. And now it's like, here's my piece of land. I've got my fence around it. Right. I've got grass on my piece of land. If you finish the grass outside on your piece of land, that's your problem. You're not coming in and grazing on my piece of land. So it, <laughs> it, breaks, down, it breaks down the cultural uh, values a little bit. But it also, obviously, with small parcels of 100 acres, completely breaks down any ability for wildlife to move around. And um, eventually the wildlife which is trapped inside those areas is probably is either going to be, you know, picked up and removed or or killed or, you know, whatever whatever might happen. And so then the wildlife which is outside those fenced areas then gets pushed into smaller and smaller areas. So the the key now is to look at ways to whichever areas which have not yet been fenced ensure that they remain unfenced and areas which have been defense, which are, you know, key dispersal areas, maybe fund, fund it so that the landowners are agreeable to remove their fences. Um, and that's, 
it's much harder to reverse damage which has been done, but I, it's not impossible. But those places, they would still, would they still like say, the fences are coming down, which is amazing, right? But would they still be very much like the, and I would say this is how I would assume this is how it's set up. My, I have X number of beds, X number of bed nights in my area. I can only drive in my area or can you drive anywhere you want? Uh, you could only drive in your area. So, yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because otherwise, then what you get is all those 40, 50 vehicles on the riverbank that you were talking about. 100%. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Into, come into the conservancy and that then defeats the purpose of the conservancy. Um, the, the conservancy there is, is there to be a high impact, low density model and people pay extra to sit at a lion sighting and only have four other vehicles there by themselves instead of having yeah, yeah. sitting at a lion sighting and having 50 other vehicles there, you are willing to pay extra yeah. for that. Um, <laughs> and okay. So the, the couple of things I, I didn't mention is number one, the conservancies themselves are not fenced. And so wildlife from the reserve moves into the conservancy and back again, and from one conservancy to another as well. They're all sort of contiguous, one part of one contiguous ecosystem. Um, the other thing is that because of this model, um, you know, you there and the, that modern predator conservation program that I was mentioning, they are constantly looking at predator numbers. They actually are seeing that in the conservancies, cheetah recruitment uh, is actually better than it is in the Masamora National Reserve because there are fewer vehicles and fewer that the, the harassment by tourists and vehicles hey. is lower. And so the cheetah numbers and cheetah and success of, of rearing cubs is higher in the conservancies, despite the fact that some of those conservancies may be quite small, but they individually, they're, they're small, but as a whole, they form a large area and they constitute this area where cheetahs are not being harassed and hammered and just surrounded by 50 vehicles all the time. The... Is, dare I ask this question? Ask. Is wildlife <laughs> and habitat better, do you think, outside the reserve now because of this, this mentality? It is better than it would have been if it wasn't for the conservancy model being um, initiated. So the path that it was going down was a path that was, you know, it was going to come to an end. And you were, it was going to end up being mm, just okay. Masemara National Reserve. You probably end up having to fence the entire thing off and you'll have this little island um, with just livestock land and, and wheat farms on the, on the north and then Serengeti to the gotcha. south. Whereas what it is now is it's, it's good habitat. They're, they're, the habitat changes. So when I first went into that one conservancy, Naboisha Conservancy 2009, um, the, it was totally bare soil. There wasn't a blade of grass in there because that that was actually a very bad drought. There were uh, buffalo and livestock dying left, right, and center. Um, that had been the sort of dry season grazing, but, but last resort emergency grazing because it had lots of uh, setsi fly at the time um, for, for the Maasai. So then when the conservancy was formed, they, they stopped grazing for a full year, uh, livestock grazing. Um, and the grass came back nice and thick, 
and uh, everybody was very happy. But then, of course, because you don't have big herds of grazing animals, then the, the grass sort of started to uh, get rank and hard and fall down. And then that created a mat on the ground, which stopped new growth, which meant you went back to bare soil again. Uh, so then they, then yeah, they yeah. brought the grazing back in, but then they started to control it. And then now you have this beautiful, thick mat of grass everywhere you go. There's no bare soil or hardly any bare soil. And between each blade of grass is, a, it's a tiny little gap. It's, it's very dense grass on the ground. Um, so now it is full of wildlife, whereas at the time it wasn't. Um, the, the big difference that I have seen is that because now it's so full of wildlife and it's a safe haven for elephants, it, what used to be thick woodland is now open grassland. And so in that way, the habitat has changed. It has opened up a lot more because there's so many more elephants in there than there ever were before. The elephants never really used to spend a lot of time in there. Um, and they've really hammered the acacias. And so in some ways, the habitat has definitely improved. You've got this nice thick grazing mat, which is stopping erosion, which is capturing all sorts of carbon, and it's, it's, you know, it's fostering all this biodiversity. But at the same time, you can't help but be a little bit sad to see some of that tree cover going or the, the woodland cover going. Um, but <laughs> no, in general, I think it's a, it, it's a net positive in terms of habitat. And it's a net positive because these because the local landowners are now starting to see the value of wildlife, whereas before there really wasn't a value to wildlife. Would you say that's a pretty good summation? Yeah, hundred percent. So I'll give you an example. Um, from about fifteen years ago, um, not fifteen years ago, ten years ago, um, one of the conservancies there, Olaremotorogi Conservancy. While I was working there, there was a landowner, so not a landowner, an outsider who decided that he wanted to come into the conservancy at night with his cows and graze them. He removed the bells from his cows so that they could get into the conservancy undetected by the rangers. Um, so he gets in there unbeknownst to anybody else and he starts grazing in the middle of the night. And... Uh, Lo and behold, he you know bumps into a big pride of lions and they kill a bunch of his cows. And then the rest yeah. of the cows go scattering around and they bump into a big herd of elephants and the elephants trample another whole group of his cows. Um, and so he gathers up the rest of them, he scurries out of there, and the next morning he's busy gathering up um, neighbors and warriors and whatever to go in there and start spearing lions left, right, and center. Um, but now the landowners themselves knew about it. They wake up in the morning and, you know, Bush Telegraph, the, the, the word spreads. Everybody starts hearing what's going on. They know exactly who went in there with their cows. Um, and before he has a chance to gather his forces and, and start spearing lions, they're standing at his doorstep and saying, listen, we know you were in the conservancy last night with your cows. You removed the, the, the bells. What you did was illegal. You came onto our land without permission. And now you want to go and kill our lions, which we are, we are making money off of. Don't you dare. Um, and so that was like the perfect scenario where local landowners who 
face the same risks as this guy. You know, they they still have livestock, they still have predation, um, they still deal with all that stuff. But because they see those lions as so valuable, because they make thousands of dollars off of those lions every year from from tourists, they would rather let their neighbor deal with his own losses for his his poor decision making than allow him to go and spear a bunch of lions. Um, and so that was sort of like confirmation that the work that the conservancy right. was doing was actually, you know, is, is making an impact, it was working. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> the reason I wanted to chat with you and the reason I wanted to have this conversation that really has had nothing to do with hunting is that, and I say this all the time, hunting is not the panacea for wildlife conservation. Yeah. It is a tool that is utilized in lots of places for wildlife conservation. Ecotourism is as equally as valuable of a tool for wildlife conservation in areas. It just so happens in Kenya that hunting is banned, so it's not a tool that is utilizable for wildlife management. And as you and Kelvin, and Kelvin's episode, if people want to go back to Kelvin Cotter's episode, uh, it's episode 293, and it's called In the Blood, um, that the tourism, you know, you guys, and, and this is maybe where we started, is that, you know, Kenya is constantly upheld by the hunting community as like, look at what happened. 70% of your wildlife is gone since hunting's been banned. And for the most part, that maybe the last, maybe 20 years of that, so to 97, or maybe even maybe a little bit further, you said you went back into that concession in 2009, so let's call it 30 years, maybe the value of wildlife wasn't there because nobody understood it or could see it. And the value that hunting brought took the wildlife populations down. But since 2009, as you've been talking this entire episode about, there is now a resurgence around, hey, there is value here. Hey, we can do things differently. We can resurrect wildlife and our populations in Kenya and do it through ecotourism. Yeah. Um, the, the difference being that it will still only be in places which are pleasant to visit. Um, and they'll, it'll, it'll only be in places which are, you know, which are, which have a name, you know, the, the Mara conservancies are, are a no brainer. You can go into those conservancies and you can see all of your big cats. You can see all the big game. You can have action on your doorstep every single day. Um, and the scenery is beautiful. The temperature is wonderful. There's no mosquitoes. Um, it's, it's warm during the day and cool in the evening. It's not, it's not, everything about it is a very pleasant experience. Um, but if you look at all the areas in Kenya that used to be hunting concessions or they were not necessarily concessions, but the, you know, the large game reserves, which were for hunting, um, all of those areas now, that's agriculture. It's gone. It's, it's done. Mm -hmm. It's not coming back. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. those areas, some of those areas were areas of very high biodiversity, but because they weren't pleasant or because nobody took the initiative to turn them into a national park at the time, 
they're done. They're gone. And you can fly over those mm-hmm. areas now and you might see a few patches of bush, but otherwise it's this sort of mosaic of, of, of maize farms and bean farms and whatever else. And you have areas in Western Kenya, which would have been rich, rich with wildlife around Lake Victoria, um, super rich with all sorts of different kinds of wildlife. And that is all disappearing because there is no value on that land. And there's, there's forests. Um, like I'll give you an example, just, just to the west of the Mara. If you climb up, the, there's an escarpment on the western side of the Mara. You climb up and you get up on top. And um, that area used to be thick, thick canopy forest, which is some, it's like it, the makeup of it is somewhere between the classic uh, East African Afromontane forest that you'd find in central Kenya or, or in on any of the, the mountains and that Guinean Congo rainforest. Mm-hmm. So you've got mm-hmm. species from central Africa living in this, in this little patch of forest at the top of the escarpment, just, just west of the Mar, like within you know, a 20-minute drive. It's very close, but nobody ever goes there. Um, and there's, so there's no tourism value there. So that forest is disappearing. So you have uh, primate species, which are disappearing. You've got pangolin species, which are disappearing. You've got bird species, which, th- which are there, which you would never find almost anywhere else. Um, and that area could have been, I think it at one time was part of a big hunting area. But now because there's no tourism there, let it go. And you know, so you've, you've, got, a, you've got a loss of, of carbon sink. You've got a loss, loss of biodiversity just because tourists are not interested in going to see it. The, the, to go back to the first part of our conversation, that young American guy who, uh, who contacted me for that mammal watching trip, um, he's the reason I went there. He's the only reason I've ever been there is because we were looking for uh, a particular diker, which is pretty much only found there, Wayne's diker. Um, so if you're not looking for Wayne's diker or giant pangolin, you have no reason to go to. You don't. There's no reason to go to go to Nyakwari yeah. Forest, and and you can you can walk around in Nyakwari Forest for four days and you don't see a Wayne's diker. So it's not a rewarding place to go. You know, you have to be very mm-hmm. dedicated. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole of Eastern Yeah, dedicated Kenya. like that guy and dedicated like hunters. Exactly. You know? So, yeah, I mean, they're definitely, you know, the, the conservancy model definitely gives me hope for, for areas which are high value for tourism. Um, but even in, even in Northern Kenya, you know, you've got conservancies and... Their conservancies in name, but if you were to drive around, you would struggle to find wildlife there. And that's just because the, the livestock numbers have just skyrocketed. And Maybe. there's just not much grass around. And even where the livestock numbers are not out of control, there's no, there's no management plan for, the, for that livestock in place because convincing people to manage their livestock is very difficult. And you, you, the breakdown of you know, they'll get into a cultural thing here is that the more, the more Western education pastoralists have um, and the more they go to church, and this is not a dig at religion, but the more they go to church and the more they go to school, the less knowledge and respect they have for their traditional animal husbandry techniques and the more they are willing to 
tell the elders to go stuff themselves when the elders say, hey, you shouldn't be grazing there. That's our dry season grazing bank. Um, And now what you have is these young guys who have gone to school, think they're hot stuff, completely ignore their elders who who do still sit around under a tree and make grazing plants, um, but they completed, they're completely ignored. Um, and so you get areas which are totally poorly grazed. I don't like to use the word overgrazed, but poorly grazed, so that they're very degraded. Um, and it's a breakdown of cultural values. And I blame that on the colonial government for having forced pastoralists into this thinking that their ways are backwards and primitive and that the only way to become modernized is to is to abandon that pastoralist way of life and move into agriculture and go to school and your schools have to be in fixed stone buildings you know we're not going to send a teacher around with you as you as you uh, move your livestock you have to stay in one place and go to school here we're not going to send a clinic around with you or, or library around with you. You have to stay in one place if you want to access those services. And so you force people into this sedentary lifestyle, which, you, which means you are... I, I, I don't really understand how they didn't see that forcing people into a sedentary lifestyle is, was not going to cause de- degradation of the land. Um, anyway, we're getting on. I, I tend to go off on long... Uh, no, Spiels. no, no. Let so, me ask this last yeah. question, Zarek. Um, would hunting be a good thing for wildlife conservation in Kenya? Um, Incendiary. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think about it a lot, um, especially when I go to places where I can see that there once had been huge biodiversity, and I can see swathes of grassland which look to me like this should be full of buffalo, this should be full of elephant, but instead it's Mm -hmm. just kind of sitting fallow and there's nothing here because none of that wildlife has any value. Just south of where where I live, between where I live and the Tanzania border, is beautiful land for for wildlife. Um, And it should be packed with... But there's nothing. There's nothing there. and look, I think, I think if Kenya had kept its hunting, it would have to have updated the way that it did its hunting. Um, right. You know, it, it wouldn't have been able to continue doing it the way it had been doing it up until 1977. Uh, the policies would have <laughs> to change. The, the method of hunting would have to change. The land ownership and, and uh, tenure model would have to change. For sure. Um, had it continued from 19... 19- yeah, it would have had to... It would have had to done like a community conservancy model exactly. that is the ecotourism yeah. model today. Something along the lines of what Namibia has, that probably would have worked if we had continued from 1977. But to, to stop and then to go back to it so many years later, like if we were to say today, oh yeah, we want to start doing some hunting again. I think... Could you imagine? It would be a worldwide like uproar. It couldn't happen. There's no way it would happen. It couldn't happen. There's no way. But also the other thing, Robbie, is, you know, like I'm listening to your podcast, reading stuff online, listening to other podcasts, looking at articles online everywhere. Everywhere across the world, there seems to be a push, a movement away from hunting. That hunting is becoming a 
a thing of the past to a certain extent. As sad as that may be, <laughs> and as, as, or as difficult as that makes me to accept, it does seem like using, look, holding on to it as something that you, you can't let go of and that you won't find alternatives for seems to be a, a folly to me. Um, <laughs> no. I, I like 100% agree with all the, everything that you put forward in your podcast about the benefits that hunting has and can have and does have in Africa and elsewhere in the world. Um, but you know, the, the number of people who are hunting is in, especially who are traveling elsewhere outside of the U S dwindling, yeah. dwindling, dwindling, exactly. it's going down. So the number, the amount of money that they're spending is going down So the amount of land that it can support is decreasing as well. Um, and so I think that, you know, as what, what Calvin would have talked about in his was that Kenya is at a slight advantage in that we have been we've banned hunting that long ago that we now have the experience dealing with trying to find the alternatives um and we've succeeded with some we've failed with others it's a it's a process but at the end of the day yeah but i would say wouldn't i think you would agree there's probably a better way to do it kenya wholesale banning hunting in 1977 certainly was no. not good for wildlife no. in kenya no. not by any means um, no, not at all. Um, overall, you know, like you so said, what you're suggesting is potentially thinking, you know, hunting, hunting communities, hunting places. There's, there's, you know, it's, a, it's like a business, right? If you see a certain market sector starting to diminish or dwindle, you, you're going to have to start investing in other market sectors to continue your economic endeavor. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so whether, whether it's in Kenya or somewhere else, but yeah, people need to start thinking about other ways of, of getting that income to fund biodiversity easements, to, to, you know, to pay hey, hey. for biodiversity. Um, hey, because hey. it's, you know, carbon credits are problematic and they're not really working very well. Um, and there's potential human rights issues with carbon credits in some places. But, you know, biodiversity easements and, and that kind of thing, if it's done right, if it's planned right from the beginning and the right sort of policy put in place from the beginning, then you can, it can be done very well and you can get people from all over the world paying to contribute to something, even in areas where it doesn't have high tourism value. Um, and yeah. I think that's super important is that we need to recognize the fact that just because people don't want to come and take a picture of it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value to us in the, you know, inherently, yeah. and it doesn't have value to, to, to the health of our planet as a whole. Um, yeah. and it's, it saddens me as well that, you know, a lot of our protected areas were just either because they were pretty, we, we decided it should become a, a national park or because it was so full of tsetse fly that nobody wanted to do anything else there, so it should become a national park. Not because it actually has the highest biodiversity value. Um, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's certain areas in, in all over Africa, but in, I'll use Kenya, central Kenya, where you know, we would have had massive, massive biodiversity in central Kenya. And a lot of that is gone because none of that was, it wasn't 
gazetted as national parks and that that was the only way to protect things at the time. Um, and so now it's just intensive agriculture and all that biodiversity is gone. Yep. It is a sad state, and it's not just an African you know, issue. It's happening all over the world as human populations expand and you know, less connectivity to nature continues. We're going to see that happening. But on the counter, there's lots of people thinking the way that you think and the way that you've just been speaking about. You know, and, and, and it's probably the only way forward is these really, really remote random areas having some sort of biodiversity value to, you know, human well-being around the world. Yeah. And that's the only way they're going to get protected with some sort of scheme that incentivizes the biodiversity remaining. Yeah. So, well, Zarek, um, for someone who was um, reluctant to come on a podcast, you certainly, you know, pushed our typical podcast is like 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Yeah, sorry. Okay, look at you. <laughs> no, I love it. Absolutely love it. We're going to have to have you back. Um, now that we've broken uh, your, essentially your podcast virginity, we're going to have <laughs> to have you back and, uh, and, and bring you, you, you know, have your thoughts more because I really enjoy, obviously, as I told you in the beginning, I really enjoy our interactions through Instagram and WhatsApp and whatnot. And it's the first time we've gotten actually to speak to each other face-to-face, not face-to-face, because I can't see you. I don't know if you can see me. Can yeah, you see sorry. me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, sorry. And <laughs> It's a, it's a good thing so you can't see me as well because I've been, waving, I've been waving my phone around in all sorts of different directions. I'm mostly looking at the ceiling, I think. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, you know, next step, you know, in our relationship building is I'll get to see you the next time and we'll, awesome. we'll podcast again. And I, I very much look forward to the day that I bring myself and my family to Kenya because um, it's a place that needs to be seen. Yeah, definitely. And man. I want to see it and I, and I think it'd be good for my kids and my wife to see it too. Definitely. Cool. Thanks a lot, Robbie. Bye, my man. You have a wonderful day. Yeah, Thank you. you. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.